Amen. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that salvation belongs to you. It's not not only something we earn, it's also not something that we retain. You preserve it. No one can pluck us from your hand. I thank you for that promise. We belong to you. We are your children. I pray that as we study today, we would think deeply upon your word, that we would leave here encouraged and strengthened, not only by what we just sang, but also, Lord, in your word, that we would be refreshed. Lord, we need showers of blessing from your spirit. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. As we were singing, we sang the hymn, Amazing Grace. That's a great song, isn't it? Don't you love that song? John Newton wrote that. Um, this is not in my notes, but while we were singing that, I ran into my office and grabbed a book because I want to, Holy Spirit put this on my mind, I think, so I'm going to share it with you. So you've got to stay five minutes late. I'm sorry. No, I'll, I'll stay within my time. But as we were singing Amazing Grace, you know, it says there, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And then grace, my fears relieved. Something there about the conviction of sin that came over him. And if you know anything about John Newton, John Newton was, you know, uh, his first mother passed away and his father remarried, but his father was a a ship captain, had ships, and um, his first mother had loved the Lord dearly, prayed for John Newton, and, and yet when, after her passing, in his young years, his father sent him to sea. England, of course, surrounded by the ocean, is kind of a seafaring nation. And so, as a young man, he goes to sea. He was completely unprepared for it spiritually. He was like thrown into the cauldron with all these rough, redneck sailors who lived hard and fast, and he was immersed in a sinful culture. He began to read the writings of some of the great quote-unquote, atheists of the day in England. And he just embraces licentious living. As he begins to do that, one of the ships he was on had gone to Venice and had pulled into port there and had done some things, and he had done some things while they were in port that were less than noble. And he gets back on the ship and they go to sea, and as they are in the boat that night, he had a remar- he called it a remarkable dream. Have you ever had one of those dreams that was just so vivid that you just could not get away from it? You wake up the next day and it's just like locked in your mind. He called it his remarkable dream. I'm going to read to you his dream. And uh, you will see how God was teaching his heart to fear. He said... The scene presented to my imagination was the harbor of Venice, where we had just been. I thought it was night, and my watch was upon the deck, and that I was walking to and, and as I was walking to and fro, a person came to me, and he brought me a ring. And he gave me a charge to keep it safely. He assured me that while I preserved that ring, I would be happy and successful. But if I lost it or I parted company with it, I could expect nothing but trouble and misery. I accepted the present, 
and the terms willingly, not in the least doubting my own care to preserve the ring. And I was highly satisfied that my happiness was in my own hands. As I was engaged in these thoughts, a second person came to me. He saw the ring on my finger, and he took occasion to ask me some questions about it. I readily told him its virtues, and he expressed surprise at my weakness. And he reasoned with me upon the impossibility of the thing. And at length, he urged me in very direct terms to take the ring off my finger and to throw it away. I was at first shocked at his proposal, but his insinuations prevailed. I began to reason and to doubt within myself. And at last, I took the ring from my finger and I threw it into the ocean, which as soon as it touched the water, a terrible fire burst out of the Alps above the city of Venice. I perceived too late my folly. My tempter, with an air of insult, told me that now all of God's mercy that he had in reserve for me was comprised in that ring, and I had willingly thrown it away, and I understood that I had to go with him to the burning mountains, that all the flames I saw kindled were on my account. I trembled. I was in great agony. But when I thought myself about to the point of, of, of despair, I was self-condemned without plea or hope. Suddenly, a third person, with the same person who brought me the ring at first, came to me, and he wanted to know what was wrong. I told him the plain case. I confessed to him that I had ruined myself willfully, and I deserved no pity He blamed my rashness and asked if I would be wiser if I gave him the ring again. I thought about it. I could hardly answer, for I thought he could never get it. But immediately when I said I would love to have it, he descended into the water just in the spot where I had dropped the ring and knew sooner than anything he brought it with himself to me. The moment he came on board, the flames were at an end. And with joy and gratitude, I approached my kind deliverer to receive the ring again. But he wouldn't give it to me. He said, I cannot trust you with this ring. I will keep it in safekeeping for you. And as ever you need it. It is yours. And I will produce it on your behalf. What a reminder that is of God's grace. We hear as a child, we hear all our life of the goodness of God in Christ, and something happens, and we just like willfully chuck it. Christ comes back to us 
and his mercy and his grace are ever new, my friend, it is truly amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That's what saves a wretch like me. I once was lost. Now I'm found. I was blind. Now I see. We're studying Romans 16. We're talking about a woman named Phoebe. We're going to talk about all these aspects of her life. But my friend, if you come here today and all you get is your fancy kind of stimulated by what we expound, and you miss the amazing grace. Woe is me. I want you to hear that message. God's grace abounds to us. I hope that you have put your trust in him alone. Let's go to Romans 16. Let's just take a minute there. I want to begin our study. I don't know if we'll get through it since I took so long with that. But Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, talks about a woman named Phoebe. She is called a minister of the church. This was a woman who knew the amazing grace of God. She'd been saved. We don't know how. We don't know when. In fact, as we read these verses, this is all we know about her. We don't know when she was saved. But we know here she was. Why do we know? How do we know she was? Because Paul calls her a sister. He calls her a sister. And so we want to learn some things about her. We want to think about some truths regarding this as we think about church governance and we think about women in the church and the role that God has for women in his kingdom. Let's look at what he says. Paul has just said amen at the end of chapter 15. He said, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That pretty much closes the doctrinal section of the book of Romans. Although he kind of comes back to it at the end of the book, and he just kind of gives us a restatement of the book of Romans in a very short paragraph at the end of this chapter. For the next 16 verses, the Apostle Paul is going to give us the most in-depth look at the common saint in the church at Rome, who they were and things about them that he knew. Now, it's interesting to know right at the get-go, although Paul has never yet been to the church at Rome, Paul knows a lot of people that are in this church. He mentions them by name. He begins this section where he gives us all these details about all these people whom he has a deep abiding love and respect and admiration for. He begins by commending a woman, a sister named Phoebe. I've read this before. I've thought about it a little bit. But I've got to be honest, I've never studied it. It was really good. I learned a lot. I had to think about it a lot. I had to correlate a lot of things. And I hope I can only pass on to you a little part of what I learned. And I hope you get some of these truths as we think about this, what it says in this text. Paul says, I commend. And I want you to notice that. I commend. 
I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Then notice this next phrase. A servant of the church at Sancria. A servant of the church at Sancria. That you may welcome her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of the saints and that you would help her in whatever she has need of from you. For, because she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Let's run through these verses. Here's where we're going. The first thing that I want you to notice as we look at this is we're going to do an overview of the text. The second thing that we're going to talk about is some of the implications in this passage for understanding church government structure. We've been working a lot on this this summer, talking about eldership and talking about the diaconate. And we're going to be talking about it more in the months to come. And we're going to do with it in a nutshell here, and we'll probably come back to some of these things. But I want us to think about the implications here for church government structure as well as for the role of women in the church. What is God telling us here in this passage? Now, this is my premise. When I read this and I study this, and I've read a lot of what a lot of guys think, I don't ever start by reading commentaries. I never read John MacArthur. You know why I never read John MacArthur? Because if I read John MacArthur, I'd preach John MacArthur. So I just don't ever read John MacArthur. Because he just, like, thoroughly outlines everything. So if I get John MacArthur in my head, all I end up doing is preaching John MacArthur. So I don't even, I have two of his books, and that's it. I just don't ever read them. Otherwise, it just, he takes over. But I do read other guys. And there's a lot of opinions about these verses. A lot of opinions. Now, my premise as I read this is this. The phrase, a diakonos, or a minister, servant of the church at Sancria, that that phrase is a verbal way that Paul is telling this church that not only has Phoebe served the church at Sancria in an official capacity, but also she is now his authorized agent to bring the letter that he wrote to the church at Rome. There is not universal consent to this, but pretty close pretty close to universal consent that the reason these two verses are in the text is because Paul is telling the church they're going to got this context because they, they know what's happening. She's the person who shows up in Rome with the letter. That's kind of amazing. The Apostle Paul has written to us 16 chapters that are really the most profound, in-depth explanation of the gospel. He does not send them by way of Timothy or Titus or Silas. He sends them by way of someone that we know nothing else about. She's not mentioned in the book of Acts. Her name is Phoebe. He has given this letter to her perhaps because she was already going to Rome, or perhaps because he sent her to Rome. 
And he says, I want you to take this to the church of Rome. So in this text, we have a phrase. She is a diakonos of the church. Now, I believe very emphatically in what is called the verbal inspiration of the Bible, which means that the very words are inspired. When Paul wrote this, he uses words that God wanted him to use, not his own words. I want you to notice what he doesn't say. Paul does not call her a diakonos of Jesus Christ, although she is a diakonos of Jesus Christ. Most of the times when you see this word diakonos, you will see it linked with the phrase, a servant of Jesus Christ. That's typically the formula in the New Testament. Here, he specifically says she is what? A servant of who? The church. I believe that is a verbal clue that he is drawing our attention to. She is an authorized agent, yes, of Jesus Christ, but who specifically? The church. She has been recognized by the church as an authorized agent who is serving. So she is a diaconist. Now also notice this. This is just very brief. This is a Greek word, diakonos. That ending there, O-S, is what is called a masculine ending. Phoebe's a what? Is she a boy? Is she confused? Is Paul confused? <laughs> Way before those days. Why does he use a masculine ending with a female? Because whenever you use a masculine ending... You're not just talking about what is being done. You are talking about an official capacity. You're talking about the diaconate or the deaconate. We use that word, a deacon. Okay, so he is talking about a position, not just a function. The position is always using the masculine ending. Now, that's kind of technical, but I hope it helps you understand something. So my premise here is this. When we read these verses, the Apostle Paul is drawing the church's attention to a truth. It is that this woman is the authorized agent of the church. She is a minister of the church. Okay, that's the premise that we're bringing to this. Now, additionally, what Paul doesn't say about Phoebe is as important as what he does say. What he doesn't say is just as important. You know what he doesn't do here? He's talking about Phoebe, and he doesn't chew the church out for giving an official title. Did he? Now, and Paul is not adverse to chewing people out. I mean, think about all the times in the New Testament where Paul names offenders and corrects offenses. So in the book of Philippians, when he writes the letter to the Philippian church, he talks about a woman named Euodia and Syntyche. Aren't you glad, ladies, you never got that name? Hey, Euodia, come here. Euodia and Syntyche. And he says to them in a letter that all of us have read for all of church history. Think about this. Euodia and Syntyche quit fighting and get along. I mean, he's called them out by name, on the carpet, in a letter. 
that the Holy Spirit gave to the churches. I feel sorry for Euodia and Syntyche, because everybody meets them in glory. Said, oh, you're that one that was in Philippians 4. Couldn't get along with Syntyche. Okay? So Paul is not adverse to chewing people out when they get it wrong. Paul is not chewing anybody out here for the fact that Phoebe is a minister of the church. Note that as we go into the study. All of this has to be interpreted in light of other scripture that specifies the exact roles of men and women in the church, which we will get to if you stay with me long enough. And I'm going to suggest to you, or I'm not going to suggest, I'm going to say to you, it corresponds with a complementarian view of the genders. I'm a complementarian. A complementarian believes this, that the genders are created with equality of personhood, but with different roles and responsibilities. It's a complementarian. There's egalitarians in the church who believe that there is no distinction between roles and responsibility. I don't see that taught anywhere in the New Testament, and nor does our doctrinal statement, nor does the elder board. And so if I began to teach you differently here this morning, I would expect that Ben would get up and kick me out of the pulpit and take over. Just joke. But we're going to dovetail all of this with a basic complementarian view of Scripture. But I do want us to understand what the Holy Spirit is telling us. Now, one thing is for sure here. And I want you to get this one, ladies. Both Paul and our Lord saw the contribution of women to the work of the kingdom as indispensable. As indispensable. And of the highest value to God. Of the highest value to God. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he actually says of a woman that when she serves in a certain way, heaven takes note. It's really what it talks about there, doesn't it? In 1 Peter chapter 3. That it is of great value to God. And so women, I want you to understand as we look at these things, your contribution to the work of the kingdom is indispensable to this church and to the kingdom. What you do, what you bring to the table, the giftings and the callings that God has given you are indispensable and they are of the highest value to God. It's very important we note that. Now, here's some general observations as we look at the text. He begins with a referral. I commend. Any of you had to write a reference letter? Ever write a reference letter for somebody and you're like, wow, I don't know how I'm going to do that one. (laughs) You know, how am I going to say this gently? He commends her. He's writing a reference to the church at Rome. He says, I commend her. He is referring to her character and to her abilities and what she has done. He says, I commend. We'll come back to that in a minute. You'll also notice her identification. Number one, she is a sister. Number two, she is a servant of the church. Number three, she comes from a place called Sancria. Sancria. Now, you all know where that is, right? Okay, let's go on a geography lesson here. Here's the Greek peninsula. Boy, isn't that good? (laughs) This would be, isn't this the Adriatic, and this would be the Aegean? Anyway, this is this isthmus, and right here sits a city 
named Corinth. Heard of Corinth. Between here and here, this is actually a, a harbor. Between here and here, there are nine miles. In order to keep from going around here in the ancient world with shipping, because it was very dangerous, they would dock here. And there was kind of an ancient rail... Ooh, what did that happen? I touched too long. It was kind of like a rail track that they built here. And they would take goods and services across. Corinth is one of the most wealthy cities in the ancient world in Rome because of this. So the goods would dock here. They would take them across these nine miles. They would put them back on boats and they would go across or go this way. The port of Corinth is the city of Sancria, and it sits on this side. So in the ancient world, when people thought of a metropolis or a greater urban area of commerce, they would think of Corinth and Sancria in, in, in kind of joint terms, because together they, they served a commercial interest in the shipping industry. So when we read that Paul went to Corinth and planted a church there, you will also see there in Acts 18, he does some work at this place called Sancria. And there is a church that is planted there. And the two are very closely united. Paul writes the book of Romans from Corinth. He gives it to Phoebe, who is from Sancria, and he sends her on to Rome with the letter. That's a general observation of what we see going on here. Now, why is he commending her? First thing, letters of commendation were given to prove an authorization. You see this in 2 Corinthians. The Apostle uses this word to talk about himself, commended as an apostle. He was commended as an apostle. So when we think about a commendation here is he is placing a stamp of approval on her as his authorized agent. Now, why does he do that for her? Why did he have to do that? You know why? Because things haven't changed. Because <laughs> things really haven't changed in the world. They're just like they were then. There were some, undoubtedly in the church, who would either distrust or disregard her because she was a woman. And so since she's a woman, there are some who are not going to trust. They're going to maybe think, well, this is a fraudulent letter. Or they're going to disregard her. And so he knows he needs to send a letter of commendation with her. And so he names her in his letter, and he commends her to the church as his authorized agent. It's important we think about that. The reason for his referral, notice this. He says, so you welcome her. You receive her. Luke 15 talks about how Jesus received sinners, welcomed sinners. He says, I want you to welcome her. I want you to help her by meeting her needs. Whatever her needs are, I want you to meet those needs, and I want you to help her. I want you to welcome her. These are what he wants them to do in relationship to Phoebe. And we won't go to Philippians 4 for time. Notice Phoebe's past performance. It tells us she was a patron. She was a patron of many and of myself. Now, what does that mean? 
This is someone who underwrites the expense of a public figure. She was a patron. She didn't put the widow's mite in the offering plate. She covered the cost of the journey. That's what it's telling us. This is a wealthy woman. She had means in her hand to propel forward the work of God, and she did it. That's what we see in the text. You see other situations that are similar to this in Luke chapter 8. Jesus is here going out into Galilee, and I just want to draw your attention to the end of this. He's talking about how the 12 were with him, and then it says there were also some women, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. One is Mary, called Magdalene. This is where we find out she had had seven demons who had come out of her. There's also another woman with Jesus, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, however you say that, Herod's steward. Think about that. Herod. There was a lot of antipathy between John the Baptist and the follower and Herod and all the ruling class. And yet here you have Joanna, who is the wife of Cusa, who is Herod's steward, accompanying Jesus in his journey. You have Susanna, and notice this, many others who were supporting them from what? Their possessions. Another place where we see women serving as patrons. Another situation is Acts 16. Paul goes to Philippi. There's no synagogue there, so he doesn't go to the synagogue. He goes to the river where there's a place of prayer. There was a woman there. I just want you to notice this woman. Her name is Lydia. She is a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. Now, one of the most valuable commodities in the ancient world was purple dye. Purple dye was made from a mollusk, a little mollusk that lived off the coast of Tyre and Sidon. It was extremely expensive stuff. Lydia is a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. She was a worshiper of God. She's listening. She she is converted. She and her household are baptized. And then she says what? If you consider me to be a believer in the Lord, would you come and stay at my house? And she persuaded us. She's a patron. We don't find anything out about her husband. She has a household. And she invites Paul and Silas to come to her house and to base the church out of her home. Her home. Let's go on and let's take some takeaways. Number one, women in the ancient world could be respected community business leaders. I'm not saying every woman in the ancient world was, by no means. But women could be. That's clear, isn't it? We see that. Phoebe is wealthy. Lydia is doing commerce in purple dye. And there are other women who are taking care of Jesus and his disciples. So women in the ancient world could be respected community business leaders. We don't know all the laws regarding commerce in the ancient world. We know that there was bias against women in the ancient world, no doubt. But women could do it. Notice this, women in the ancient world could be wealthy. 
Couldn't they? By their own entrepreneurial pursuits. You see that in Proverbs 31. Read Proverbs 31 and see the kinds of things that that woman was doing out of her home under her husband's um, leadership, but nevertheless had made great business, um, per, had great business pursuits. So in the ancient world, women could be wealthy by their own entrepreneurial pursuits. Also notice this, women in the ancient world could direct their financial affairs as they desired. Lydia says, come and stay at my house. Phoebe is a patron. All these things. And the Lord and his apostles are in full support of this. Right? There again, we don't have Paul chewing anybody out for this. They're in full support. So, we could take this away. Paul trusted and entrusted women with specific ministry responsibilities. He utilized women in missionary endeavors. And he sent and delegated responsibility to women as authorized agents of the church. That much is clear. I think we can infer that clearly from the text that we are looking at, as well as other places in the New Testament. So, I would just say this, our fear sometimes of unbiblical practices can make us swing the pendulum too far. Now, I don't want to quit, so I'm going to finish. And I'll do it quick, but 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3 got to be figured into this equation. Your homework is to read those two chapters. That's your homework. Please do it. And I want you to think about what it tells in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3. There are two permanent restrictions on women that Paul mentions in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3. One is he forbids women to serve in the office of overseer, eldership. Thus, it is forbidden to women. There is a permanent abiding restriction on the office of public teaching of God's word to the congregation in corporate worship. That's clear. Okay? That is in this text. You can dance on your head. You can come up with funky explanations for it. People have done so. But if you just read the text, this is what you're going to say is there. If you just read those verses and you say, what is Paul saying in these verses, you are going to come to a conclusion that Paul puts two permanent restrictions on women in the church. The office of eldership, the office of the public preaching of God's word. You will also see in this text that there are two specific church offices. All authorized agents of the church are foreseen in these two categories. Those are the office of elder and the office of deacon. Minister. The office of elder and the office of minister. By the way, we will come back to this next week because I've got a whole lot more to say about it than I'm going to say right now. I don't know how many keep up with church news. There's a recent flap in the SBC. How many, everybody know who, what Saddleback Community Church is down in California, Rick Warren? Big flop in the SBC trying to decide whether or not to boot them out of the convention. I don't think it happened. Did it, John? It didn't happen, did it? 
There was a lot of debate about it, the most recent, what do you call that hullabaloo they have every year, the SBC, with Saddleback. reason is because for several years, Saddleback has been ordaining women to the pastor, which is clearly against Baptist faith and, uh, how do you say that, message, Baptist faith and message, their core document. Big flap going on there. And we're going to come back to this next week because we're going to think about these. But if we're going to stay the course as a church, and I'm going to give these to you in a nutshell so you think about them, and we don't deviate with the winds of culture and change, we stay true to the Word of God, and we think about these things. We don't do the pendulum. Here's some things I want us to think about with staying the course. Number one, we shouldn't be looking for loopholes in the Word of God, to just accommodate the culture. Now, this is clear. This is what Saddleback ends up doing. And I'll explain more to you what's going on with Saddleback. You can read that if you want and do your own research, because they're a big church in America. The The loophole that they do is they try to distinguish between the office of the pastor and the gift of a pastor, And then what they try to do is to say a senior pastor has to be a male, but assistant pastors can be female. And I won't go into all their explanation now. I'll do it next week. But clearly what they're doing is this. Kind of like how you look to get out of your taxes. You look for loopholes. I suggest that's what we got going on here. Don't blur lines to excuse error. Do not blur lines to just excuse error when we want to do something as a church. If we're going to stay the course on any doctrine, these two things need to be carefully guarded. That we don't just look for loopholes and that we're not always just trying to blur lines. Having said that, We want to avoid the pitfalls that often beset the church. These pitfalls, I'm going to suggest there's a borrow ditch on either side of the road, and it's easy to fall into them. Sometimes we fall in the pitfall of placing women in positions that God has restricted them from. Sometimes the church relegates the women of the church to a place of unimportance. Those are both dangerous errors. We're going to be true to the Word of God and we're going to stay the course. We've got to get it right. So having said that, since I'm about out of time and out of screens, we'll come back, okay? And we'll teach on that more. Because I want us to think about this, especially as we are working over the next couple of months to rework some things in our constitutional bylaws. And as we've been talking about eldership, as we think about the concept of a deacon, it's very important we understand some of these truths and um, that we have a clear grip on what God teaches in his word. So we'll come back to that. We'll look at it again next week. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that you've given us. Lord, we live in changing times. In so many ways, we just change with the times. And and we're, we're just oblivious to it. 
Help us, Lord, to to stay true to the Word of God that never changes, that abides and lives forever. Help us, Lord, to rightly discern your will. Help us, Lord, to, as a church, be able to formulate things in ways that set us on a course for your blessing. That, Lord, we would hear from you a well done. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.